Hi, welcome to today's Focus Mind podcast. With me today is Justin Ross, clinical psychologist um, based in Colorado. He comes from a slightly different angle from other people that I either work with on the whole in my part of the playground in sport and performance psychology. Although I've worked with clinical psychologists before um, when I worked in Olympic sport, Paralympic sport. But Justin specializes in athlete mental health and performance, and previously he's written for Runner's World, and he's got other articles coming out in other publications. I'll let him tell you about that if that's relevant to our conversation today. And as I say, it's about you as an athlete and a person. You're, what, what I've just said there about athlete mental health and performance aren't completely isolated. The two go hand in hand and hopefully Justin will fill in some of the gaps for us. I'm also interested in how his skills from the therapeutic field impact his practice compared to maybe my more performance oriented lens. And according to colleague Duncan Simpson at the IMG Institute over in Miami, he thinks that focus is the key skill to develop and that's the name of my podcast. If you can't have good focus, how can you achieve what you want to do in life? But along with that is mental toughness. And I know that Justin's talked about mental toughness, and I'm sure it will come up in conversation. Uh, but first and foremost, let me just say, Justin, do you want to introduce yourself and say hi? Yeah, I would love to. And, and thanks for the opportunity to chat with you today. My name is Justin. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist here in, in Denver, Colorado. And, and like you said, the, the area, the playground that I like to work in the most is related to athlete mental health and human performance. Um, and I think about human performance in, in kind of a broad context. I'm, I'm really interested in helping amateur athletes get the best out of themselves in their performance pursuits. Elite professional athletes certainly optimize their performance in that arena, but also human beings in general, thinking about performance pursuits in, in other areas, just being able to live optimally. So that's the work that I'm about and, and happy to chat with you more about it today. Yeah, well, that's a great entry point for us to go in and speak about, I think. So we had a little chat prior and I'm always fascinated by the work that clinical psychologists do across the board, but I'm just going to put you into a specific situation where you might have an athlete that comes to you, they're super hardworking and, you know, they do their training. Maybe they're not getting the kind of results that they want. They feel they've got more potential in them. And I'm just wondering, looking, I know how I would deal with it from my end, but um, in your situation, I asked you the question, would you work therapeutically with them uh, on, uh, as them as a person before you would delve into performance issues or do you kind of work with the person and then on specific endurance mind training as you go what how would you work with that yeah it's such a great question and, and I think about it really from two different angles so the first is my personal angle as a provider is I always think about human first performer second Right. Sometimes that performer is athlete. Sometimes that performer is surgeon. It depends. But I always think human first, performer second. Now, how people think about me differs. Some people come to me because they're performance first and I need to dial in my performance and let's work on that. And other people are like, no, human first. And I've got all these things happening in my life that are impacting my ability to, to optimize performance. So part of it for me is thinking about fit right? What is this person really needing and looking for in terms of our interaction? And how are, how are my skills, my knowledge, my training going to help them take that next step? Sometimes that next step is, is just an inch. I always think about the, 
the, the most important question in my mind that I ask somebody is, why are you coming to me now? Mm. Because it's, it's not often um, the case where this is just new, right? Something has usually been happening for a while, right? It's been percolating. It's been under the surface. It's been irritating. But there's a reason they're coming to me now. That's a really important question. And it's usually when pain becomes really pointed, there's something that's now painful about the experience or about the lack of performance. And that's often the, the key to start to unlock where to go underneath it, whether we deal with the human side or the performance side first. That is such a great point. And I mean, if you've, if you've played that example athlete, athlete X through that filter, you'll have got a feel for what their immediate needs are. And I guess that talk to this small piece for me. The person who comes in saying, I need real help with my performance. Can you help, Justin? And you do your review and initial consultation and you're thinking to yourself, hmm, maybe the performance is secondary to what we've got to fix first. How do you negotiate and navigate that with a person, like typically? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think the challenge is often not being the one to lay it out there, to say, like, I think you need to fix anxiety, depression. It's about helping the person get there on their own, mm. right? So helping them understand and bring awareness to what those barriers or those impediments are. And I, you know, one of my favorite sayings is you cannot change what you're not aware of. Mm. So the first thing I always really work on is helping generate awareness, right? Understanding why now, but then understanding awareness about what is really impacting this ability to be as successful as you would like. And if people can find a way to get there and access that on their own, they're much more willing to work on it, whatever it is, whether that's a human issue, a stress, anxiety, depression issue, or if it's a performance-based issue. How, how do you go about surfacing awareness with the individual who's no doubt really, you know, dialed in on their needs and, you know, what they do training wise, but maybe less in touch with the interior, shall we say? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, about asking the right questions in the right way for the, for the person. And everybody needs a different approach for that, mm -hmm. but try to find those inroads that, that develop that awareness for their lives as human beings, but also in key moments where they feel as though they're not living up to their standard, or they feel as though they're, they're deviating from their performance. Right. So it's, it's, it's hard. It's a hard question to answer because there is no one size fits all approach. It's about, trying to find the nuances of how to ask those questions to help people bring awareness to what's happening. Good, good, good. Have you got anything which is a commonly occurring way in which you can kind of help people who aren't necessarily au fait with what's going on up here in their mind with actually really making them clear on like, their own awareness is there is there a, a couple of typical things you see particularly maybe with runners and endurance athletes that come up again again yeah what one of the things i see a, a lot is um stubbornness and sometimes stubbornness can be a great thing it can help people push forward but often what i what i see is frustration sets in about their experience and so what they do then is then they double down on the thing that they're doing in the first place mm. right and then it just sort of it it adds layers it adds layers to the problem and one of the hardest parts to, to get to especially with let's face it most of most 
these folks that I work with are hard charging, highly ambitious, want to perform well. One of the hardest things to get them to do is to sort of stop, to slow down, right? And to, to pause, right? They want to go and they want to get after it. But often what they're doing is they're, they've still got a shovel in their hand and they're just continuing to dig a hole and we need to put the shovel down to look at what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where your therapeutic skills must be tested to the fore with the type A personality person. Absolutely. And, and a part of that too is like, well, let's, let's fix this now. Right. Like let's, let's go doc, let's get it done. And it's like, well, hold up. It's going to take a minute, right? You're, you're a human being first and you've been a human being for, you know, two decades, three decades, four, whatever, four, you've been doing a lot of these things for a long time. We can't just snap a finger and, and change humanity, right? So I have a lot of really goofy sayings and, and one of them, you know, over here in, in the States, a lot of people are, you know, monolingual, right? We speak English and that's it. Um, and so I'll often say, you know, like if, if you want to learn a different language, if you want to learn Spanish, the first thing you don't have to do is you don't have to unlearn English, mm-hmm. right? And I see a lot of people in this space trying to unlearn English, right? I need to unlearn what I've done. It's like, no, 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 I don't think that works. I think it's learning a new approach. If you're going to learn Spanish as an adult, it takes repetition, it takes exposure, and it takes willingness to be vulnerable and having it be kind of clunky at first. And I think as that relates to the mental game or the inner game of sport, that's a lot of what we're trying to do here is we're, we're trying to learn Spanish. We're trying to learn a new language system and how we're approaching something. And that something can vary, of course. I love this analogy, both as uh, a runner and also someone learning French. <laughs> <laughs> I think my running's better than my French. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and I mean, one of the things that just comes through from your writing um, and is probably a vehicle that you can tap into the awareness piece, I'm sure, um, and, and, and just talk to this part, part of what I've seen is, is your strong belief and um, way in which you get people to think about their thinking. What I talked about with Noel Brick last time I was doing a podcast and in particular, the narrative that people have got in their head, you know, those kind of people you were just describing. Yeah. And I think it's huge, right? Like a, another favorite tagline is, you know, our, the mind is a highly trainable skill right? And yet we don't often think about that. So I'll often, going back to the English analogy, I'll I'll often ask people like, how did you learn English? It's a weird question, right? Or how did you learn your native language? And everybody is almost like, huh, I've never thought about that before. And the truth is like, when you go back, it's based on exposure, right? That's the number one way that we learn any language is exposure to what's around us. And then over time, that becomes more and more narrow based on the specific culture and environment that you're in. And our performance language is very much the same. It's based on exposure and it's largely based on how you talk to yourself and interact with yourself in your daily normal life, right? A lot of that just kind of transitions into your running shoes, right? Very few people are sort of, you know, an average day human being and then Superman in their mind when they're in their running shoes. So part of that, it's like understanding how that translates and then understanding like you can have performance specific language that can be helpful and you can have performance specific language that can be harmful it's understanding again awareness first understanding what's actually happening in your thoughts and your mind and your cognitive appraisals and your vocal attention and then learning that you can shift all of that as you're moving and so i think so much of it is that you know if we can get playful about it right if people could spend five minutes ten minutes every training session that they're in 
just working on some aspect of the mental game, they are going to just, oh, they're going to be so much better and probably more connected and a little bit happier about the performance just in general. Well, what's, uh, what's, what's one of the more successful approaches you take getting people to become aware of that narrative? Is it something that you get them to do more in their private life and they're wandering around and you're trying to get them to think about what's, what that narrative says? Or is it out on the trail or in the, on the racetrack? Where do you kind of try and get people to surface what might be going on there? Yeah, I, I use a, you know, kind of a guided practice around attentional control quite a bit for folks, both in sport, but also in life, right? And the basic premise here, right, is we have a couple of different ways that we can pay attention. We can focus inward, you know, what's happening inside our mind, inside our bodies. We can focus externally, right, to the world around us. And then within each of those, we can have this narrow or this broad approach, right? We can really focus on something small or something more broad, more, more global. And so what I recommend, this is almost always a starting point for athletes. On your next run, let's go through a process of learning just how to shift your attention through those four quadrants, right? Start broad and external, right? Just notice the world around you, what you can hear, what you can see, what you can smell, but don't get too attached to any one thing. And then, you know, really narrow that down for the next quarter mile or whatever. Just look at the tree up in front of you and just maintain all your focus there. And when you get distracted, not if, but when, (laughs) bring your attention back to what you're focusing on. Then you shift that internally. What am I feeling in general? How does my body feel? How does my mind feel? Where's my mood at in general? And then really lock that in, right? Lock it into one thing. How does your pinky toe on your right foot feel in this moment, right? Oh, there it is. I can feel it. What's your thoughts? What are your thoughts? That's the the way to learn sort of this sports-specific self-talk that people can get into. But I think about that approach, like do that at the grocery store when you're shopping, right? When you're taking the kids to school, right? When you're in front of your computer doing work, can you spend a minute circling through those four quadrants? And that's, I think, a a great way to start to bring awareness to what happens in the mind, but also a really tangible way for people to learn to to train it. You can then spend time in each of those quadrants as you see fit. As an athlete in in a training environment, it's really important. But especially in competition, it's really important to learn how to have skills then in each of those four categories. Yeah, my old uh, boss, uh, Professor Steve Peters, would be always talking about trying to shift the thinking in different parts of performance. And I, I really recognize the same way in which you're trying to get people to do that. And I really love the idea of working with people and getting them to apply some of these skills that they might think you know, like these kind of people we're talking about, very driven type A personalities often, like try and use some of these outside of the sporting context because it's like, it's working the muscle, working the mental muscle. So you're getting free training in the supermarket, which is a pretty dull activity for most people. (laughs) And the other thing I was just thinking about as you were talking is like, you look at a lot of the language and I mean we're both guilty of this I'm sure I've seen you talk about part of endurance sport is suffering better than how you either were before if you're wanting to chase your PB or suffering better than opponent x y or z z Z for you z for me and I think sometimes when I think about some of the athletes I work with that whole narrative in endurance sport about gritting it out and about being tough it kind of translates over in a really negative way to like people feel like they must be in pain or it's some reflection on them if they're not talking in a really, you know, kind of earthy and difficult way. 
And yet I'm often trying to shift athletes to think about maybe you're not making it all, you know, rainbows and unicorns, but kind of maybe more helpful, say, instructional self-talk, you know, about where you're physically moving different parts of your body or how you're staying on pace rather than having a narrative which is quite negative towards oneself because it's seen as like this self-flagellating kind of pushing through it stoically yeah i i think that's exactly right and in a lot of ways i have i have a hard time with the concept of mental toughness because of that Mm. because i think it gets translated into this idea of you're supposed to learn how to tolerate tolerate pain when it's bad for you Right. Like, yeah, I know you, you broke your foot at mile two of a marathon. Keep going. Right. <laughs> running on a broken foot. Like that's not mental toughness. That, that's stupidity. Right. Like that's a bad idea. Yeah. Right? I think like the whole concept of suffering better, I think is important in endurance sports. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the one of the reasons we do it in the first place is we sign up for these things be, because we want to see what happens when the moment gets challenging and difficult. We, we want to see one, what we can train our bodies to do. But we also, too, want to see what we can train our minds to do. And sometimes it's about having sort of calm conversations, right? Not even motivational self-talk, but like sort of calm self-talk, right? You got this. It's okay. You've trained for this. You can tolerate this, whatever it may be. To your point, it could be instructional self-talk, right? Like guiding yourself back into the mechanics of movement, as a purposeful way of focusing in that moment when it's, when it's hard or challenging. Um, so it's, it's about learning the nuances of that. And I think the beauty of sport is it provides an opportunity for all of us to figure out what works, mm-hmm. right? Some people really do need motivational self-talk. Some people like instructional, some people need that kind of calm, credible conversation to kick off. And so much of this work is for all of us is to figure out what we really need in those given moments. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, I, I, I just wondered about it. I had it in my mind as you were talking, kind of one of these people who are the, you know, very tough talking to themselves kind of individuals. And just maybe if you've got an example of where you've seen an athlete really shift to a different perspective, maybe going from tough talking in the way they act to a lot more calm or, or something else. Have you, have you got examples that you can think of? Yeah, I'll, sometimes when I have an athlete like that, I'll, I'll I'll recommend they do a, you know, some type of training session mm-hmm. where they break it up. And so, so over here, you know, we talk about miles, right? So mile repeats, for example. Mm-hmm. So, all right, you're going to go do mile repeats on the track. And for the first mile repeat, I want you to just be neutral in your self-talk, right? Try to keep it as neutral as positive. If you're drifting positive or negative, just bring it back to a neutral standpoint, right? The weather today is this, this is my to-do list right here's My body feels just fine, whatever. But then your second one, I want you to crap on yourself. Like just, just get disparaging. You are doing terrible. You're the slowest athlete on the face of the earth. You're no good. You're rubbish. Why are you even out here? Right. And I want you to not only do that, but I want you to notice how you feel physically, emotionally, mentally. What, what kind of toll does that take? Right. And then the third one, I want you to be sort of grandiosely positive, not super inauthentic, but a little bit where you're pushing it. You're amazing. You're doing an awesome job. You're killing this repeat, right? You are going to hit your goals. And I want you just to track and notice how they feel, right? And how they affect your performance. And, you know, nine times out of 10, people come back and be like, doc, man, that second one felt awful, right? I felt, 
I just felt terrible. I wanted to stop, right? I didn't want to continue. And the last one is like, I felt, it felt good. I felt empowered, enthusiastic. I enjoyed it. That's the point. More so than outcome on time for me is performance standard, mm-hmm. right? And a performance standard is how you hold your mind in, in whatever it is you're doing, right? Can you hold your mind in an authentic way, but that's at least neutral or somewhat positive, right? Holding it in such disparaging negative ways is often inauthentic and more times than not, doesn't, doesn't feel good. People don't like to live in that space. Mm-hmm. So I can say that all day long and I can tell people to do that, but it's not until you put yourself in an environment where you can experience that firsthand that you can walk away and say, oh gosh, okay, this is really what I noticed. And here's what I think uh, would be helpful for me moving forward. Yeah. I always describe that, you know, how do you find it in the same way where it's the disparaging, difficult way in which people do it. And I, I, I always have this concept. My athletes would just be rolling their eyes at this, that their em- energy is like a battery on a mobile phone and how much did that mile repeat take down the battery power compared to when it was a bit more positive and it it's it, because everyone uses smartphones and because those runners are kind of pr- probably on strava straight after they it's something that they can hold and resonate with absolutely yeah it's a great image and great visual i'm going to put you on the spot now though because i know that you have a you, you've got a great pb in marathon right well i mean great's a relative term I mean, (laughs) great for me. Like it, so I, I've got a 257 marathon PB, which for me, like breaking the three hour mark was really important. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I was able to do that just before COVID in in December of 2019. Perfect timing. So the question I've got is as you were trotting around doing your 257, how was your self-talk particularly in the tougher spots of the race? I took my own advice that I use with my athletes, which when we, when we talk about marathon specific, I always recommend people break the marathon down into either three or four chunks Mm -hmm. and have not only like a pace strategy and a nutrition strategy, but to have a mental strategy for the race as well. Right. And this whole idea of like, how are you going to hold your mind? is a term I use a lot. So for me, I, you know, I had that race broken down into four chunks with a a mental rehearsal plan of how I was going to go about it. Right. So the first part of that marathon was just to be very calm and collected. Right. As, as you know, beginning of a marathon, people are amped up a lot of energy, your body's prime because you've been tapered, right. There's enthusiasm, there's like music it's and you can go out really fast, right. Because it feels good. So I was like, no, calm, chill, collected. And then as we moved, I thought about this transition hitting the halfway mark for me was the first chunk. Right. And then really it was like 13 through 10, 20 was the second chunk. And I knew that was going to be the part where discomfort was going to start to mount physically. I knew that if I was doing it right, my body was going to start to fatigue a little bit. I was going to get those, those signs in body that were saying as they should like, "Mm, slow down. Yeah. You don't really need this. I knew all of those things were going to be there. So I had a plan for that, right? Like let's embrace those. Let's be aware of them coming. Let's have some, some positive self-talk there. And then the last half really was for me, 20 to 24 in miles was chunk three. And then 24 to 26 was the last chunk. And that, that 20 miles over, the reason I think about having it two chunks, you know, this whole idea of the wall, right? That people are afraid of. And we talk a lot about six miles or 10 K can feel like a really long time for people if they don't have a plan. So for me, that's where I turn on the music. Did that music the first 20, 
but music hit the last, the last six or last 10 K. And I was all about shifting my self-talk into to really being motivational and encouraging and starting to use the you versus I language, right? Instead of like, I'm doing well, I got this. It was like, no, you got this. You're doing well. You're right where you need to be positive and encouraging. The last two miles were then shifting into sort of Superman mentality, right? Because that's where it, like, you know, I, I was hurting. I was, I was really in a lot of physical discomfort, but the goal meant a lot to me. And it'd been something I've been working on for so long. So I was willing to tolerate the discomfort. That's a really important part of this. But then the, the mindset really shifted into like Superman self-talk. You're a badass. You got this. You are not stopping no matter what. Right. So like not how I would normally talk to myself, but for two miles to achieve a goal that was really personal, personally relevant, really helped me just continue to push through that. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely love that. Yeah. The, the whole shifting from I to you, I went into detail with Noel on uh, it's one of the big pieces of research that he talks about. If you've read The Genius of Athletes, he did with Scott Douglas from Runner's World. Yep. There's a whole section in there. So one other thing we were really tapping out on in our conversation before was the, and you've touched on it here, is about periodization of psychological training. And for me, this is, for, for an athlete who's kind of hit a wall of performance and they come to knock on your door or mine, this is where we can give them something completely different to maybe what they've used before. And what I mean by that is, I really like sort of trying to get them to think about the different sessions, because if you're doing a lot of training, you might be doing recovery runs, but you might be doing some real hard threshold tempo work, track work, and you've got marathon pace work. So you've got lots of different training. And what I'm trying to do is get them to apply the correct kind of thinking to the correct type of training. So just from your practice, just if you can talk about what you might do or how you, how you go about that with athletes. Yeah, I love, I love it. I, and I really love the idea of periodization of mental skills training and thinking about training the mind in a very similar way that we train the body, right? The whole general concept of periodized physiological training is you have to do certain things, certain types of trainings at certain times to, to really maximize adaptations, to get you to your performance goal. The mind is no different. Right. Another one of my favorite taglines is the mind is a highly trainable skill. So my approach, how I think about it, the framework that, that I that I use a visual is a pyramid. And the pyramid has has three component parts. The bottom is just the base. And I think about this being foundational skills. We talk about it as base training in the physiological sense. I call it foundational skills in the psychological sense. Right. And this is both sort of in and out of sport. Right. The idea of self-belief. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're capable of? We talk about self-efficacy beliefs in that area. Mindfulness training, I think is something we can do year round in and out of sport, conditioning the mind for focus, for paying attention, for physiological and psychological reduction of arousal. Those are the types of skills in, in the foundational component. There are others as well, but those are the, the, the big ones for me. The, the middle of the pyramid is what I call sport-specific self-talk. And the reason that this is in the middle is that it's going to vary depending a little bit on your goals. Part of the foundation is goals and motivation, right? The second tier is going to depend on what your goals are. So if you're, if you are training to knock out a 5k PR, right? It's very different than if you're training for a 100 mile ultra race, the way you're going to approach your self-talk is going to differ drastically. So 
goals and motivation set the foundation, sports-specific self-talk then come in the middle and help us shape what we're doing, right? Some of those ideas that I think about attentional control, right, that we talked about, shifting focus, um, instructional versus motivational self-talk, right? I also think about adding calm conversations to that mix. Those things are really important in that middle tier. The top of the pyramid then is a lot smaller, right? And this is, um, I call it executing when it counts, right? Being able to have performance standards for how you're going to execute in difficult moments. And that occurs in training, right? If you're training for a 5K and you have hard workouts, you need to be implementing those skills there. It occurs if you're training for a 100-mile run, right, and you've got a 60-mile long run, okay, you better be implementing some of those skills there to get the most out of it. Those are things commonly we call mental toughness, which we just kind of reviewed, grit, right, emotional regulation, right, cognitive regulation, arousal regulation, all of these things to, to bring it down. Because if you don't have that at the tip of the arrow, you're not going to, you're not going to get all the juice out of the orange when, when you need it. So that's how I think about this approach to periodizing mental skills training. And do you actually work with athletes and say, right, on today's session, this is how I'd like you to be using this skill. How about we try this on this session and what have you? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And it depends on when an athlete comes to me. Right. And so I, I think about that framework, not only in training the mind, but also when athletes come to me, right? So the question of like, why now really matters, right? So I get a couple athletes, even this time of year. So the Houston marathon is January. It's a big deal in the States. Yeah. A lot of people reach out in late December, early January. They're like, Hey doc, can you help me with my race plan? Like, yeah, of course we can absolutely work on that, but we're coming in at the tip of the arrow. So part of it is like, I can't train any of that underlying stuff for you. We don't have time, but I need to know what you've been doing or how you've been thinking about these things. Maybe not in that language set, but you've been doing it anyway in your training. So let's talk about that so that we can execute a race plan on stuff that you've already been working on. There's still time to train some of those skills, but it definitely helps if you have a longer runway where you can be thinking about this six months in advance, right? To really work on training it alongside your physical training. I'm a huge believer that that's, that's ultimately the sweet spot is adopting these skills day in, day out as you're going about your physical training. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I've more than once said it, but I, I see the kind of work I do as being like a personal trainer for the mind, particularly for athletes. And Although we talk about clinical psychology and sports psychology, in many ways, I'm looking at the conditioning side of what I do. Like Duncan says, uh, IMG, you know, exactly what you said there. If someone comes to me with very little time between where they are and where the performance is, we can definitely do something which is going to hopefully add to the bucket. <laughs> it might not be massive, but, you know, you're looking at percentage gains that will give them some confidence. And if, you know, you know, yourself, if you've got someone who's got a six months worth of training and you're an S&C, that person's going to probably have really well-developed muscles and able to cope under different pressures. So, yeah, <laughs> it's very much a, a, a typical situation for us as practitioners that people come knocking on the door a bit too late. Can you help me? <laughs> it's like, OK, <laughs> well, let's see what we can do. <laughs> And that, that leads us nicely to a lovely kind of follow-on question because I think it's so easy in this world to look at results and time on clocks. And, you know, you mentioned about your PR in the marathon that you did earlier before COVID. And it's very easy to get outcome-oriented. 
and given that we started the conversation talking about looking at working with people holistically, as you go through the work with the athlete, how do you leave things with people and try and help them see the bigger picture of the skills that they've used in their training and racing into the rest of their lives? Yeah, it's a great question, right? And I think one of the things that I think about in the, in the athletic sense is, yes, let's validate how important outcome goals are, right? It's a big reason a lot of us go chasing after, you know, faster times or Boston America you know, BQs or Kona qualifying times in, in the Ironman, whatever it may be. But I often really try to not only validate that, but offer focusing on a slice below that, which is performance standards. And if I have enough runway with people, we talk about what are the performance standards that you want to live up to. These are things that are far more within your control, right? Outcome goals, there's a lot of variance in that, right? The weather, you know, the food, you could get a bug. It could just not be your day. There could be any number of of reasons an outcome goal isn't hit. And I see people get devastated when they don't hit their outcome goals. But if you could answer the call of living up to your performance standard, it feels like a success no matter what. So performance standard for me is always this idea. um, And it doesn't have to be everybody else's, but I think it's one to train of really matching effort and intensity with the needs of the day. Right. So for me, like when I hit a marathon PR, I knew that, you know, come mile 20, the wheels can fall off, right? Anything can happen. But if I can just continue to push as hard as I possibly can, despite what my watch is telling me, I'm going to know that I did everything in my power to be successful. And if you can answer that call and really believe that that's what matters more than anything, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think we need to spend more time there. Too many people are crushed when they don't PR and they don't give themselves enough credit for really having a performance standard that they can live up to. So that's the, the athletic sense. I think that then translates to life, right? Just in general, right? That one of the reasons that, that people I think pursue amateur adult athletics is, is for outlet and for social connection, but also to see you know, what is possible in their lives. And that thought, right? That self-efficacy belief of, holy cow, there are a lot of possibilities for me, translates to all other things. Right. It opens up their possibility for what they can do in their in their family lives or in their careers or in their other you know, bucket list chasing the things that are important for them to do, to see, to to engage in. So the translation, I think there is not lost. And it's it's a nice pathway. Sport provides a really nice pathway for helping people self-discover what those what those um, opportunities really are breaking through limits that are often self-imposed yeah that's a lovely way to uh, close things for today i know that you're really busy right now with the work in helping the more public health side of things we discussed before the show started but you also mentioned how you're you are working with athletes so if if anyone's interested in finding out more about you what's the best way they can get hold of you yeah so it's a really two ways so i have a website drjustinross.com. People can find my contact info there. Um, and then email through, through that, that forum is, is going to be the easiest. And then, you know, Instagram, I'm on there a bit. People can connect with me there. It just Dr. Justin Ross on Instagram and then Strava, man, you know, like let's, let's connect and not worry about what, what paces are or anything like that. But it's just fun to see athletes all over the world, getting after it on a regular basis and, and continuing to push themselves. So those would be the three easiest ways to find me. Yeah, I, I do think Strava is probably the healthiest social media outlet there is. And I don't mean that purely on the fact that people run on there. I think in terms of the 
support, the connection, the goodwill that you get, that you don't really end up with all the bad things that we see on maybe some of the other platforms. That's that's my personal take on it. Um, yeah, well, look, a lot of great support there for sure. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, um, Justin, thank you so much for your time today and uh, your insights, your methods. And it's just really lovely to try and fuse the worlds of clinical and sports psychology that little bit more and bridge the gap. So uh, thanks for your time. And I look forward to you hearing this back and um, seeing how it fits for you. Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, for the opportunity to chat with you today and, and wish everybody all the best. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Justin. Thank you.